This episode of the Vergecast is brought to you by IBM. 16 million new-collar jobs will be created by 2024, and to help fill them, IBM's new education model gives high school students workplace experience and associate's degree. 90 P-Tech schools are already preparing graduates for tomorrow's STEM careers. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash p-tech. Hello and welcome to Vergecast, the flagship podcast of this week and every week in your life. Just mixing all the jokes together. I'm Neelai. Paul is here. Hello. Dieter. Hi. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Dieter has arrived, everyone. Dieter is here. Casey hi. Newton is joining us this week. Hi, hi, Casey. Hey, gang. Nice to be here. It's good to have you, Casey. This is like an all-Casey show. So here's what's going to happen. This is true. Mm-hmm. Earlier this week, Casey Neistat, the internet's Casey Neistat, just arrived at the Verge offices on a boosted board mm-hmm. bearing a gift of hot sauce. Hot sauce is delicious, kind, by the way. I tried what it. What kind yesterday. of hot sauce? Um, his kind? own brand of hot sauce. It has his face on the label. <laughs> what? It's, it's very, it's perfectly on brand. He oh stole, Casey and I said, showed up. We've been talking for a while about having him on the roadcast. He showed up. He stole a unicycle from one of our video directors, unicycled around the office, and we talked for an hour on the record about everything. Just wild stuff. We talked about Facebook and platforms, what he's doing with YouTube. We talked about what happened at Beam. So here's what we're going to do on the Verge Chats this week. The four of us are going to talk about Apple for a minute because there's an Apple event next week. Then we're going to run an edited version of the Casey interview. Then we're going to come back, and Casey Newton is here, and I really want him to talk to us about what is happening with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Yes. And if you want to hear the whole crazy hour of Casey Neistat and me just chatting, we're going to stick that in the feed. I will tell you... This is a controversial plan, and mm. Adidas hates this plan. <laughs> so if you hate this plan, please tweet at Backlon, where he will agree yeah. with you. If you think this plan is smart, please tweet at Backlon, where he will disagree with you, <laughs> and just keep this whole conversation away from me. And if you think fights about where to place an interview on a podcast are <laughs> hilarious, please tweet at all of us, because we would all love to hear that. <laughs> anyway, so that's what we're doing this week, uh, trying something new. It was a really fun conversation with Casey, so look forward to that. But let's start with basically what I think is the only news of the week. There's not – besides the Facebook stuff, which we'll talk about. But I was going to say uh, – There's obviously that. But yeah. uh, Apple announced an event, just like quietly announced an event for next week in Chicago, yeah. uh, which is new for Apple. They're having it at a high school, a public school in Chicago, a tech public school. Have they done that before? No. Mm, it's been a long... If they have, I don't remember. I feel like they've done something where they're like on the scene of... No, they, they did, did the Apple Watch was at like a watch. community college. Yeah. But um, it wasn't like... That wasn't an education-focused event. That was like a bunch of community college students had to contend with Bono oh, showing up on campus for the day. Yeah. They were they were teaching us all how not to make a, uh, an Apple Watch. And <laughs> uh, later on, they learned how to do it right. Dieter, that's a Tuesday? Yes. Tuesday, it is starting at... 10 a.m. Central Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Time zones are hard. Central Time, um, however, the best time zone. The, the single best time zone in the world. I say this as a proud Midwesterner. I don't know what Dieter's I, saying, some trader stuff right now. I grew up on Central Time. Central Time is a friend of mine. Central Time is a bad time zone. Disagree. Anyway, I'm not going. This is true. You know, I like to go to Apple events, but uh, Becky has this baby any minute. Dr. Told me not to go. Actually, didn't tell me not to go. Mm. I said, can I go to this he, work he event? He trolled you. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, well, it probably won't happen, but if you go, it definitely will. 
And then he just sort of like <laughs> smiled and walked out of the room. I'm like, thanks, Dr. Leonard. Jeez, man. He placed you under a curse. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going with Dieter and Dan and Lauren are going. That'll be very exciting. Um, we're thinking it's just iPads, Dieter. What's your what's your vibe? Well, so uh, Bloomberg just had a thing that the they're pretty they're pretty confident they're gonna release a new version of iBooks. It will just be called Books or maybe Apple Books. Uh, we're definitely expecting iPads. Um, the Apple has uh, one regulatory approval for a couple new iPads uh, in Europe. I think it was yes, and there's also just been like swirling rumors that they're gonna make a, make a cheaper iPad. Um, we get way into uh, that. There's also uh, this thing that has been spotted in the betas called Class Kit, which is uh, apparently a thing for developers to make apps that work in the classroom. Um, and then the other like, there's other question marks. So definitely books. I'm pretty confident saying definitely iPads, definitely class kit. But then there have been rumors of a cheaper MacBook Air. Uh, I, I have many How do you make the MacBook Air that. cheaper? Uh, you it's already the, the cheapest laptop they make. Yeah, you just make it cheaper. So you, you think the same the price. non-retina? Let, let me say, here's an idea. It's unapologetically cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, like, it's already, it's already way behind, right? It's... Got a yeah. non-retina screen. It's USB A. Well, it's been replaced by the the MacBook, which has uh, everything you can need. It's got a whole USB C port. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you think they're gonna like ret retinify the MacBook Air? I don't know what I think. If they do it, they have to leave USB A on it because that is what like schools are are not gonna truck with dongles. That's just the kids are gonna swallow them. They're gonna throw them at each other. <laughs> like I don't trust kids with dongles at all, mm. right? So they have to have regular USB A port on it. And if they release a Mac with like USB A ports, everybody on the planet's gonna be like, oh wait, I want that one. Mm-hmm. So they have to somehow nerf it such that nobody will actually want it except for classrooms. Yeah. And I am imagining they're going to position it as um, as like the education Mac that's like dirt cheap, has an underpowered processor, does, doesn't even have a retina screen. It's basically the current MacBook Air, honestly. They'll just like they'll reduce the price and make it out of plastic so that you can throw it at, throw it at people and it won't it won't hurt them. Um, and then they'll they'll call it the the Mac, the eMac <laughs> eMac 2018. The the if you don't remember what the eMac was it was an iMac. The best Mac ever. It wasn't an iMac. It had a, a different design. It was an always it looked like an iMac. Yeah. But it was white. It was like a little bit more bullet shaped. It was a cool It was computer. huge. It was massive. It was massive. Yeah. yeah. And they they made it only for education. And Dieter told me that uh he, he snaked one when he was in grad school. I mean Ooh. if if by snaked one you mean that I was a student and therefore was allowed to buy an education Mac then then yes. Uh it was also my wife at the time was a teacher, so you know we had our ways to sneakily <laughs> you, were, you were in the cabal of EMAC purchase. Did you also have an EMAC 300? The, the oh EMAC, God, I did, actually. <laughs> of the, course you did. The EMAC had <laughs> headphones, another audio jack. I think that might be a microphone No, there's, port. it's two headphone jacks on the front. Three USB ports, two FireWire ports, a modem jack, yeah. Ethernet, and is that disp- – what is that? A Big display port? Yeah. I don't know, remember. Big display yeah. port was the most famous <laughs> monitor standard. No, it had two headphone jacks on the front, so two students what is that could plug? like. What is that plug right there? That was Apple's weird mini VGA connector. Oh. Yeah. So here's the question um, that I don't know the answer to about this uh, let's take a field trip event. The invitation that Apple sent is a line drawing clearly you know, meant to have been drawn by an Apple pencil. 
Yes, by Johnny Ive um, himself. And the, the only the only iPads that support the Apple Pencil are the Pro iPads. And if Apple's going to release an education iPad, what is it going to support the Apple Pencil? Are they going to re- are they just going to make the cheap? Are they gonna, is it going to be the iPad? Is it going to be a cheaper iPad just for education that happens to support the <laughs> Apple Pencil? What are they going to do? So they already the have a cheap iPad, right? It's three twenty nine. Yeah, it's the iPad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. D- doesn't support the smart keyboard. Yeah. Or doesn't the Apple Pencil. Or the Pencil. So why wouldn't you just yeah. bring, literally leave that product alone and add a smart connector and pencil support to that and call it the iPad? It's the same problem that Dieter pointed out with the MacBook Air. You have created a really good product for a really good price. <laughs> <laughs> and then no one will buy an iPad Pro. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, why I, would I you buy question. an iPad Pro? Yeah. Casey. I have a question. So... My understanding is that uh, one reason why Apple may feel compelled to do this is because Google in particular has had a lot of success getting into the classroom. So mm-hmm. I would love to hear from you guys what sort of competitive pressures Apple is under right now to not lose the education market and how all of these products that we're theorizing about might actually help them claw back some market share from Chromebooks. So they've lost. They lost. Apple has lost the education market. They have to try and win it back. It's not lose more it's like they're they're getting spanked correct me if i'm um, wrong i thought they lost before the chromebook came along well mm, maybe but uh, the chromebook the chromebook has taken over so case and it's taken over because they're cheap and because they require zero like it maintenance and uh you don't ha- you can like you just log into your google account and your stuff shows up and there's no like there's nothing else that like really teachers or IT administrators have to do. And so they're dirt cheap. They're easy to maintain. If you lose one, it's fine. And like st- all the stuff is like in the cloud anyway. And so it just sort of, you turn it on and it works. And then Google has done enough with the Google suite, G, the G suite to make classroom stuff better. Um, and so like you add all that up and it's like great for classrooms. And uh, to try and catch up, Apple has added a sort of multi-user thing kind of to the iPad, but it's very complicated and silly and only available to students in classrooms anyway. Um, it's not true multi-user like you can do on a Chromebook or a Windows machine. And then also like 329 for an iPad is still like kind of expensive, especially when you have to buy a keyboard, a Bluetooth keyboard to go along with it. Um, you know, you can go buy a Chromebook for 175 bucks and like it'll do fine for a fourth grader. That is not the case with an iPad. So to take a, a, a little bit more... I don't know, crazy view of this. Okay. Like not grounded in practical reality. When I was like little, computers in schools were Apple IIe's. That was neat. Mm-hmm. And it they were just like inherently multi-user because nothing happened there. Like it, like it didn't matter if like it was there were the concept of counts didn't happen because all we were doing is like playing Oregon Trail. What was the game with the fish? Odell's Lake. Odell Lake. That game was Oh, the I didn't best. play that one. I had number munchers and word munchers on my Apple IIe in elementary school. Very fun games, by the way. Then sort of the, back. the next wave of that uh, was Macs. And I distinctly remember none of the Macs in any of my schools or the Macs uh, when I was like the, the IT dude in the college science library had mm-hmm. any user account stuff going on. Mm-hmm. They, you needed admin privileges to like mess with the system, but every everyone used the same user account because all of your files, you were – Either saving to your network drive, which you could log into easily and then log out of, or you're saving them literally on physical removable disks. Right? Yeah, you save everything to a floppy disk and carry floppy disks around your backpack. Yeah, I live that zip disk lifestyle, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> then they failed instantly and I had nothing. Um, but that meant that Apple never 
really contended with the paradigm of multiple users. Like it just never occurred to them. And where they went to was these extremely personal products, right? And you can see that now as you pull the thread all the way out, like they're putting a watch on your wrist and they're putting AirPods in your ears. All of their products are these intensely designed for one person experiences. It's like, an, uh, didn't they have an iBook for every student type of thing? Like, look at this cool school where they bought an iBook for yeah, everybody. Or they bought an iPad for everybody. And the idea that every student had this like one to one relationship mm. with a product, or you as a consumer have this one to one relationship with a product that you bought, is still pervasive in Apple world. Like, we talk about the Apple TV all the time. Like the Apple TV's greatest flaw is that it refuses to recognize that you might have a family. Like, it just <laughs> fuck your family. Right? Like, it just doesn't like them. Um, so I think Casey, the thing with the Chromebook is Google accidentally and then very aggressively has embraced the idea that the physical computer is disposable in that paradigm. It's basically a netbook. So you, you know the classroom can be full of them. And the students don't take them with them. Or you can give one to every student. And like Dieter said, if they break, it's fine. There are no stakes to that device failing. The students can graduate and you still have them all. You don't, you know, if you run a lower income school, you can just buy a bunch with a grant and then you have a bunch. And I, just that alone and then the ease of administration, the ease of user accounts, has just Apple has to come in with a more compelling multi-user solution at a price point that is like more fleet oriented and their entire brand and vision right now is like we will we will gild you in baubles that connect to iCloud. <laughs> okay, so so you mentioned crazy ideas earlier. So is this tell me how dumb this idea would be. Uh Apple makes like a Chromebook clone that you just log into with your iCloud account. Like do, would they ever have an incentive to do that? I mean, everyone's been asking them to make a clamshell iPod since or iPad since time immemorial. By the way, a clamshell iPod would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I support that. Um, <laughs> you know what? A, a super underrated part of Apple's entire suite is iCloud.com. Um, it's a weird thing to mm. give them credit for, um, but you know, I bought my mom a Chromebook Pixel, the first gen one, and she logs in iCloud.com on it all the time and like uses it like an iPad because it has touchscreen. It works perfectly yeah. well on Chrome, and she closes it. So she has all of her Apple stuff, all the sort of like syncing that she may or may not want to do with her phone happens. In Everything except iMessage. Right. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not looking to up my mom's rate of texting me. So that's. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, mom. I don't think she listens to the show, but if you do, if you are, uh, know that I, I value you. But yeah, it's like I think they could do that, Casey, because they have this product that's like so close to it already. Right. right? But do you want to use iWork isn't in there, right? They'd have to build all of that. I don't yeah. know. I, I think I, that's to me the fundamental reason Google is pulling away. And now Microsoft has done a bunch of that stuff as well. Uh, mm-hmm. My niece and nephew school gives uh, Windows PCs to everybody. And it's the same kind of idea. And they're making ever cheaper versions of Windows and ever cheaper Windows PCs. But fundamentally, that the idea that Apple stuff does not do multi-user well is it's just real. It's always been real. The, and is they, that like strategic for them though? Because they're just trying to sell more hardware. Who knows, man? Yeah, I they, don't know. I feel like it. It has been on the iPad historically, right? Yeah. But I don't know how many how many parents that have an iPad are not like fine handing it to their kid, right? Like right. all everybody. It's it it still boggles my mind that there's not better systems for that. Maybe this is the the moment when they will do that. I I feel I I, I understand multi user is very important. 
But I feel like the essential edge Apple has in this scenario is that there are so many wonderful apps for creativity on iOS and especially on the iPad. And the edge that Google has is Google Docs, which is how you do your homework. Yep. So your school, do you want to help kids do their homework or create sick beats with a music <laughs> app that they downloaded? <laughs> the, other thing, the other thing I've been wondering about is how can Apple subtly, without letting any of the parents or administrators know, give all of these kids iMessage because that's what all these kids want. Yeah. They all, they wish, there's no, the iPod touch is basically dead. I guess a lot of kids just get iPhones now, but that's a pretty expensive thing. But man, if you just walk out of your school one day and now you have a, an iMessage device, you're feeling pretty good On your yourself. iPad with a keyboard? You yeah. are the least cool kid in the club. Like, hold on, <laughs> let me draw this iMessage. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? You're at home iMessaging. Yeah. I'm with you. You've got access. To iMessage. To iMessage. Uh, there's another thing we haven't talked about here. Yeah. Um, much like Apple, we have completely forgotten about the existence of the iP- iPad mini. Yeah. yeah. I don't get the iPad mini. Every people, once in a while you hear from people and they're like, I love, love my it. iPad mini Bob so Mossberg much. loves his iPad mini. Yeah. I don't get it. So, uh, like, if you have an iPhone 10, you basically have an iPad Mini. <laughs> so that's who, the thing, right? Yeah. I think it was um, was it Dan or Tom in the, in our little Apple planning meeting yesterday that pointed out that the only place on Apple's website where the iPad Mini is prominently featured is like their education portal. Mm. Yeah, an iPad Mini. I, I will say an iPad Mini that you could sketch on. It's much closer to like a moleskin size. Or if Apple made a pencil that worked on the iPhone 10. I think we're my, here's my prediction. I think we are completely overthinking this. Okay. I think okay. I think they're going to put out they're going to upgrade that 329 iPad. They're probably going to leave the yep. processor the same. They're going to add the keyboard connector and maybe a, a cheaper stylus thing. Okay. Yeah. And keep the cuz the pencil is like not a you don't want to like you don't want a thousand kids to have that product. Like the cap yeah, is in that get meeting. Lost. By the way, I, I just kept on yelling "passive stylus." Anytime anybody <laughs> tried to say anything, I like I interrupted Lauren Good and felt terrible about it because she was like, "Oh, I have an idea." I was like, "Passive stylus." <laughs> just, just the whole thing just kept on screaming "passive stylus" over and over again. It was really disturbing, quite honestly. Passive stylus sounds like a Depeche Mode album. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, now I really want to go to this event. What if the musical guest is Depeche Mode at a oh high school God. on the west side of Chicago? <laughs> that would be amazing. I think that it'll be a cheaper stylus, and the upsell to the iPad Pro will be faster processor, better screen, active stylus. Speakers. And then if they do a MacBook Air, it'll be just like another processor bump to the MacBook Air at a lower price. Right. Now, you know, I love the iPad more than most people, and my iPad is like three and a half years old, but I don't want to upgrade it till I can get Face ID on it so I can stop logging in with Touch ID like an animal. But that's yeah. not happening next week, right? Like, I have to wait till the fall for that or later? Pretty sure we're waiting until later for that, yeah. That's yeah. not good news for I me. kind of don't understand Apple's upgrade cycles anymore. Like, you know the iPhone will come out in the fall. Yep. That well, I understand. That's like The, the rest of it, who knows, yeah. I think it dep- it, they realize that the iPad is something that people upgrade infrequently and therefore they should update it infrequently yeah i think they're trying to match their update cycle to people's upgrade cycle which is why they're really slow in building new laptops 
don't know. I don't know. Anyway, okay, let's do this. Yeah. I'm going to read this ad. Then we're going to come back. My little half of my conversation with Casey Neistat, basically. Which got wild, by the way. We talked about a lot of things. It's very real. Then I'm gonna, you come back. Mm-hmm. Casey Newton is going to tell us what the hell is going on with Facebook. So I'm going to read this ad, and we'll have Casey Neistat. This episode of the Virtcast, as you know, brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion, and food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Asks IBM. Farmers are already using it to increase crop yields. Watson and the IBM Cloud provide access to weather data and analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and reduced water waste. So as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. Casey Neistat is here. Casey is here. Casey, I've been trying to get you on this show since for a year since we met at South by Southwest a year ago you know that makes it sound like I'm um, this is some sort of like elusive <laughs> I live two blocks from here my office is three blocks from here. it's just been like you should publish our uh, DM thread alongside this podcast that's just like this Tuesday and it's like nah it doesn't work how's Wednesday not good for me yeah for 365 days. So can I tell the story of when we hung out at South by Southwest? Yeah, One please. of the most insane dinners of my entire life. Yeah, and, and that'll and get us I, in the I think time. I may have been hosting that dinner, you and were I had no dinner. idea what I was getting myself into. It was very strange. So CNN had just acquired Beam. That's right. Uh, and Casey, did me, he invited me to dinner. CNN's hosting a dinner. There was like an insane guest list. You were there. Uh, Cory Booker was there. It was like, it was a big dinner. Jeff yeah, Zucker who, was who there. Who else was there? Alexis was there. Alexis Ohanian was there. It was a great dinner. There were some, and then there were some some outliers there. I, w- I was there. <laughs> <laughs> there were the CMO uh, Mark of, of Samsung was there. Yeah. And I remember like I was dressed as I'm dressed now, like sweater and jeans yeah. or something. There were some people there in suits. And I then was there, also dressed like a piece of crap. And then there were a couple people like in the corner that were like, what did you invite me to? Yeah. I'm wearing sweatpants. So it's this big fancy dinner, and it's supposed to be on the roof of a hotel in Austin. Private South chefs. South and it was raining. Torrential. Was torrential rain, so it got moved inside. And Jeff Zucker was very angry that it had been moved inside. We all were. And then the fire alarms went off, and the door between us and the private chefs that were cooking for us began to slowly close by itself. And if I could paint the picture a little bit more, it's like a big, big room, like a, like a substantial room. And the chef's kitchen was open to the dining area, like a sort of like a, like a fancy restaurant situation. So you could watch the chefs yeah. cook your meal. And, that, and, and the door just sep- separating the two, yeah. And the, the light on the fire alarm was like flashing. You jumped up and put your hat over the light because it was so distracting. It was bright. Uh, and then we were like, we should hang out more. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's more details to that story too. Like the whole point is the chefs were supposed to serve us, but they couldn't yeah. get to us because there was a firewall between us. Yeah. They had to go out through the fire uh, escape into the stairwell around, going yeah. all the way around. So we weren't able to get our food. I didn't really notice or care, but I think the folks from CNN who organized it were like super upset about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Senator Booker yeah. seemed pretty chill about the whole situation. He was. He was very chill. Every, there was food, the, food was great. You know, if you're a guest and you, 
I imagine a lot of people there are like professional guests that go to a lot of events. Like your job is to be chill and like not make a scene. If you're the host in that situation, you are losing your shit. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm like a, you know, I'm, I'm, I eat at McDonald's four days a week. Like this <laughs> fancy dinner, like I, I alarms, this just felt normal to me, but they were really stressed out about it. Anyway, so that was one of the first times we like seriously hung out a year ago. We've yeah, been yeah. DMing ever since and I've been, I've been wanting to come on the show for a couple of reasons. One, I'm just interested in what you're doing. Two, and I want to talk about that. Two, uh, whatever is happening right now with platforms, it just seems out of control. And I think you're obviously one of the, the smartest thinkers about YouTube as a platform, but you think about all the other platforms too. So I want to talk to you about that stuff. Because I think whatever's happening with Facebook right now is coming for YouTube next. And I really want to kind of get your thoughts on that. But let's, I want to start with you. Please. So that was a year ago. We were celebrating Beam. Tell me a little bit about Beam. Like what, what's that story? I mean, the whole story uh, abbreviated and jump in for, for, for details. But, you know, I started that company. It was an idea. And mm. it, it was the original idea was still an awesome idea. But basically it was everybody's going to be wearing Google Glass or something like it in the future. And imagine if you could just tap your, your temple and mm-hmm. capture what you're seeing and share it to the world. Yeah. And the idea was conceived before uh, Snapchat launched Stories. But I got really excited about that idea, and I raised money and then partnered with Matt Hackett and then launched as a tech company, and Google Glass then died, and then uh, Snapchat really came up, and it, it sort of kept shaf- shifting and changing and growing and you know, it had a really successful launch, but like most apps do, sort of leveled off, and then Snapchat got really awesome way better than us, and mm-hmm. I think we struggled in that space. Yeah. But, it, you know, in parallel with that life cycle of the software development company that was Beam was my YouTube channel and the launch of my daily show on my YouTube channel, which was very much so about being the tech company. And I think it was a confluence of, you know, the, the, the technical prowess demonstrated by the team more so than what the product accomplished itself combined with what I did in the new media space via the vlog that ended up being an attractive prospect to a, a couple of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, in Turner, CNN was most attracted and put forth, I think, the most interesting offer for Matt and myself. Yeah. And that is what led to the acquisition in November of 2016. What did you want it to be at CNN? Because I heard a couple different versions from you and some other folks there that it went in a couple of different ways. What did you ultimately want it to be? Well, I think what I wanted it to be and what they wanted it to be um, didn't exactly look the same. And it unfortunately took a long time to really understand that. But what I wanted it to be was I was excited about technology. Mm -hmm. And that's why I started Beam. Um, Media and YouTube, those are things that I've always understood and I love doing. But technology was a, a, a new frontier for me. So with CNN and them expressing what their desires were in in the tech space, you know, they have an app and they have some interesting tech, but they don't have anything that I would describe as... Um, outside of the realm of what you'd expect from a, a, a news media company like Turner or CNN. Yeah. Uh, so I saw an opportunity there for us to make some really forward-thinking software products. But was it going to be, when you launched Beam as just your own company, it was like hold it to your chest it was and purely, do Yeah, it was purely a software And then when company. you went to CNN, it was like, we're going to take in all this input and make a daily show. And then you made a bunch of like kind of standalone YouTube videos about some interesting topics. Was that the final decision? Yeah, I mean, well, that's where I was going with my... Uh, diatribe there. Sorry if I was drifting. But, it's, <laughs> but, 
But the idea, like what what excited me, mm-hmm. um, was to develop forward thinking apps, leveraging all the amazing resources that CNN had. And then to have a media component of it as well, a media component that leveraged the information uh, that the technology enabled, and then disseminate that via new media channels, so YouTube yeah. and social media and things like that. So that's a very like high-level, sort of wishy-washy elevator pitch for a mm-hmm. company. But to me, it felt like enough. Yeah. And then from there, and I think this is where your confusion's coming from, and I think the world's confusion with what the hell we were doing came from. From there, like that was enough of a foundation for me as a tech entrepreneur and as somebody who's really sort of freewheeled my way through new media to build a company on. Like, yeah. here's a tiny foundation of an idea, go. And what works, do more of, and what doesn't work, move on from immediately. And I think where I struggled is that kind of entrepreneurial thinking that kind of like innovators thinking just doesn't really mesh necessarily well with a larger entity like a Turner. Yeah. And that was where kind of a, a lot of the struggles came from. As things were winding down early this year, Matt and I looked back and we were like, this is literally a case study for the innovator's dilemma. Like, really? This is what we were confronting here. You th- so the classically, classically, our audience knows the innovator's dilemma. I'm going to sure. say it out loud. That's when a company has an existing product line. The, I think the classic example is like IBM and mainframes. And then a cheaper product comes along that disrupt, disrupts it. And they can't invest in the cheaper product and compete in that market because they have to protect their larger market. So you're saying CNN was – they have to protect cable so they couldn't come at you because you would destroy their existing business? I, I think it's a very, that's a very literal interpretation okay. of it. But I think it had to do with – the kind of nimble thinking that enables uh, startups to operate and disrupt mm-hmm. um, isn't necessarily the kind of nimble thinking that a company as large as uh, as an old school media company c- can can do. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I, I know I'm being a little bit evasive here, and I'm I'm trying to speak carefully because CNN was a fantastic partner. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was very vocal in owning the failures and the shortcomings of Beam as not a product of CNN, but a product of my, you know, my own shortcomings. Right. You made um, a very heartfelt video when you, when you wound it down. Yeah. And that's because I believe that. Like, I, you know, CNN was an incredible partner and they wanted us to do what we thought we needed to do to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, I, you know, like, first thing we do is hire a bunch of people. In retrospect, huge mistake. Like top heaviness is not something that is conducive to a startup environment. Bootstrapping, mm-hmm. where you have to hustle and you force yourself to go beyond your comfort zone and you force yourself to assume responsibilities that go beyond your specific set of responsibilities. Um, that is where real like innovative spirit comes from. So you think you got too big too fast inside of CNN? Yeah, and I I think that you know that getting too big too fast goes back to again that sort of innovator's dilemma um, uh, analogy, which is that the way a big company like that works is let's make sure we have the staff and the resources to scale the way we want to scale. Right, and that is a right, but very, you need to have something to scale. Sure, uh, right. right, and, and that's I like think, the main problem. Right, and I think that's exactly the 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 stress point that I'm trying to articulate. There was no malice there. There was yeah. nothing. Uh, that I would fault CNN for. They did what they believed was really right, and I think that they were wonderful in that capacity. And we were trying to do what we knew how to do, which was the best, you know, best we were to do it. And ultimately, like, those two, the convergence of those two ideologies were in conflict, uh, not in concert. And that was a really challenging environment for Matt and I to, to operate in. Can you, what was the day that you decided to wind it down? Can you, can you say, like, who'd you talk to? You're like, I'm done. You sent an email. You sent a text. Um, you tweeted. It, it was not my decision. Okay. It was not my decision. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think towards the end, the last couple of months, 
Matt and I were really exploring and presenting with CNN myriad ways forward that we saw would yield success. <laughs> and CNN was incredible in that capacity as well. Like yeah. they had a number of ideas and the process was a process of, of mutual exploration, meaning that like, you know, the heads of CNN that we worked with incredible, uh, really, really smart thinkers. They presented us with opportunities. We would compliment them back with other opportunities. And there was a lot of goings-ons there that um, we were excited about and some we weren't excited about. But ultimately, um, you know, ultimately a company of that size and a company with that kind of balance sheets looks at things in ways that is 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 not the way an entrepreneur would look at things. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was building Beam with Matt, it was like survival and success at all costs. Pivot, shift, whatever the fuck it takes to make yeah. this company a success. Um, but when you've got an entity as large as that, that's not necessarily the way they think. And I think at the, at the end of the day, ultimately, they saw uh, being more financially responsible to absorb, you know, the assets that we had accrued over the course of a year of operating independently, absorb them into the company itself. Um, absolve itself of the uh, expenses that were keeping us external mm-hmm. and let Matt and I go. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, Matt and I really were empathetic to that position. And it was a, you know, it was a, a, a sort of a collective, we arrived at that place collectively. Yeah. So here's my question. So that's me. But uh, Facebook announced it's like Patreon clone, right? They want to attract creators to that platform. Does that interest you? Uh that's what I feel like YouTube seems like a, you, know. you can't get away from it. So your question was, is Facebook's new monetization opportunity exciting for creators? The short answer is yes. I think that as a creator, uh, I wish there was a better word than influencer because that's just such a dirty, disgusting word. But generically an influencer, someone who peddles their influence in exchange for <laughs> goods and services. Yeah. Um, you know, as someone who makes a living on social media – there's always a desire to find new outlets um, mm-hmm. for monetizing the content that you create. And I think if Facebook is coming up with inventive ways to do that, sure, that's interesting. That's that's a very pragmatic, uh, practical answer. I think a more romantic or more emotional answer is just that what's cool right now? Mm-hmm. Um, where are the eyeballs right now? What's socially and culturally relevant right now? Um, yesterday, I tweeted uh, Ninja, who's a, a, a huge gamer, a huge streamer on Twitch. I tweeted his interview with uh, CNBC, and um, I said, if YouTube's not scared of Twitch yet, they should be now. And you've been doing stuff on Twitch recently. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm, I think Twitch is a really interesting platform. But there was a lot of people that came back to me who were, were not creators on either platform, and they're like... YouTube is, you know, bigger than Twitch by a multiple of X. YouTube has nothing to worry about. YouTube is not for streaming. YouTube is not for gaming. Twitch is only totally reasonable responses that mm-hmm. I that practically, they're unemotionally, they're all correct. Except when you put the X factor of emotion, you put the X factor of culture, you put the X factor of cool in there, and all of a sudden it becomes a very real existential threat, not to YouTube as a viable search engine for video that is the, you know, global uh, standard for searching for video, but the community, the, mm-hmm. the community of creators and their audience, which is a huge, extremely exciting, extremely valuable piece of property in the media space. I would argue the most valuable piece of property in the media space. Yeah. They're vulnerable. YouTube is vulnerable. And if Twitch is seen as the new cool guy, cool kid in town, which like Ninja did an amazing job and, and so did CNBC of painting it as that when they're talking about the monetization opportunities on the platform and Twitch Prime and all these things that sound so much more exciting than 
a five-second pre-roll that you wait to <laughs> skip, and in return yeah. you get uh, 50% of the tenth of a penny or whatever it is on YouTube. That sounds exciting. And if there are interesting people like Ninja and the other, the other people that are really dominating Twitch as a platform, combined with the mass frustration that's taking place with the creator community on YouTube, that's what I see as an existential threat. I don't think YouTube's going to go out of business this year, and I don't think Twitch is going to become uh, eclipse YouTube anytime soon. But I do think in the months and the years, tides shift. And when they shift, like Snapchat seemed like this impenetrable, invulnerable monster when it came to being socially relevant and cool. And Instagram is 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 mopping the floor with them when it comes to social relevance right now. So I've seen a lot of like Vine stars went to Instagram. When you think about where you're going to be, is your home YouTube and you're like, looking for something else or are you trying to be distributed everywhere or how do you see that playing out? Um, I've, I've always uh, aspired to be platform agnostic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've always said I'm only loyal to my audience. I have no loyalty to a platform. I love YouTube, but if my audience is not on YouTube, I'm going to go to wherever my audience is. Yeah. And this is why no matter how interesting the monetization prospects are in, on Facebook, the majority of my audience right now is not there. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if they had really compelling ways to pay me, if my audience isn't there, I don't care. Um, inversely, if there are places that I'm not making any money at all, but my audience is there, I'll go there. Yeah. How do you uh, balance that out? I mean, you gotta make, you gotta eat. Yeah. And, and I think it's very challenging. Yeah. Um, but I think that how I balance that out is the main reason why YouTube is such a priority for me. It's where, um, the majority of my audience is. Um, so what you see me doing on Facebook, what you see me doing on Twitch, what you see me doing on um, Instagram and places like that, it's experimental. It's to see like how does the audience respond to stuff here versus what you would see me doing and you have seen me doing on a platform like YouTube, which is a much more committed, consistent um, respect for both the audience, the content, uh, and the platform. Yeah. Uh, so another thing I want to ask you about, you very famously have a deal with Samsung. I always think about that when we do our videos because that's a line that we as journalists and reviewers just can't cross. Like Samsung can't pay me to do anything. So they, they offer. We, we say no like all the time. Apple can't pay me to do anything. Everyone believes Apple pays us to do everything. <laughs> it's just the, the you reality. Guys are, you guys are such fanboys. <laughs> it's the reality of the situation. But, you know, that's like just a line we don't cross. You live on the other side of that fence. Do you ever feel pressure from your various brand deals to do something or say something? Do you think of yourself as a journalist? When you were at CNN, that was a question I always wanted to ask you the most. Like, are you doing journalism here while you have this brand deal? But now you don't. So where do, where do you see yourself um, in that spectrum? I think it's tough. And I think it's that that challenge is exasperated by my own fuck-ups of past. Like, I've, I have worked with Samsung and not been clear with my audience on it before, which was just stupid. Uh, <laughs> and No, I mean it. And I, looking back at it, like, I, I recognize the stupidity there. And the tough thing is, um, and this isn't an excuse, this is merely me trying to share my thought process, but um, I, I've always sort of maintained an objectivity. I've always been super transparent about the fact that no matter what uh, contract I might have with a Samsung or something like that, I still carry an iPhone. Yeah. Um, I've always been transparent with the fact that, like, no matter true. what. It's true. He's, he's got a 10, and he, what, what's that? That in? is an LG. It's not even a Samsung phone. I'm, <laughs> I'm playing with an LG right now. Um, uh, Headphone jack. I'm just pointing it out to everybody. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the S9 is super, super sexy, by the way. Yeah. Um, I just don't have one on my service provider yet. So I've, I've screwed up in the past, and I should yeah. have been much, much more transparent in the past with it. But again, it's like the way I think is it's like no one's really going to buy my favor, mm-hmm. and I know that in my heart. 
but I, I expect my audience not, and that's not fair. That's totally like... Especially as your audience gets bigger. Yeah, and it, I, that's a, I'm an asshole for even thinking that. And I think that that's something I've learned is as my audience has grown is like, um, you know, we were talking about earlier a mutual friend of ours who works in the tech space who right now is like posting for T-Mobile. Mm-hmm. And it's not a big deal for him. You know, he's got 20,000 followers and it's not, the consequences are small. And I think that when I look at the times I've screwed up, egregiously with not being super transparent about my brand partnerships. It's just been because a a failure to really acknowledge the repercussions of that. But to answer your question, I think as long as that transparency is there Mm -hmm. and you're overt about it, I I think it's okay. Uh, I think I am unique in that capacity because I love doing tech reviews and I've never once been paid by Samsung or anybody else to say something favorable about their device. And this is, again, these are distinctions that I expect my audience to understand, and that expectation is completely unrealistic. But it's like every brand partnership I've ever done with Samsung has never been about promoting a device. Yeah. I mean, go back and look at every single video. We did a video for Christmas, and it was about, you know, um, turning a, sh- a, a shopping mall into a playground for, for kids. And mm-hmm. we did a video this last summer that I got uh, really, really beat up on social media for. But it was just about me and my best friend, like, goofing off in France. And before that, we did a video where I flew on a drone, and, like, we shot that on Canon cameras. I don't even think there was a Samsung phone in that video. Yeah. Um, so, again, it's like Samsung is, is a sponsor and enables these big, ambitious projects. But then I'll do a review of one of their phones, and like, how's my audience possibly supposed to understand a distinction there? Yeah. And the onus is on me. The onus is on the creator. And I think that um, uh, I think that the creator needs to do a really good job of being really clear with that. And I have not done a good job. Yeah. You know, it's in fairness, I will say I don't. The reason that we never do that is because I don't know how to solve that problem. Sure. Right. Like, I think it's more important for us to say. Just have, always have that answer at the ready. They can't do that. We don't allow them to do that. And it's like always in my back pocket and we always say it. But I look at the future of creators on these platforms and I don't know how you grow a business without doing that stuff, like quite honestly. And I, I think that's a huge problem, especially as these platforms hoover up more and more of the ad dollars. They hoover up more and more of the attention. You either got lucky and you started The Verge in 2011 before they existed and you have enough scale – or you have to play – if you want to start something new, you have to play in that game. And there, there has to be a middle ground. And like, I, I honestly – I don't yeah, know what the it, answer it, is. And I'm, I'm happy on my side. I think the people on YouTube – I love a lot of tech YouTubers. I love your channel. You, know, you have to make different decisions to run that kind of business. And I, I look at it and it seems really hard. It's, it, it's tricky. And look, this is a really simple thing mm-hmm. that I'm looking pushing ahead. Um, you know, when I was with uh, CNN for last year, I wasn't really looking at, or courting any brand brand deals. But now, again, I got to I got to pay the bills and I have to focus on my business. So I, I am looking for brand deals and companies that I think I can align with. And what was really interesting to me is I did a brand deal. I don't even think they paid me; they just gave me tickets <laughs> to go to both the Super Bowl and then go to um, to see the uh, Floyd Mayweather fight at the end of last summer. And it was with. SeatGeek. Yeah. And I was super over it. I was like, this is a sponsored video by SeatGeek. Thank yeah. you, SeatGeek. And my audience didn't mind. Yeah. They didn't object. And I think like, and again, in retrospect, this is such a 20, you know, ret- hindsight's twenty twenty. This is such an, an obvious distinction. But I think the audience respects that you have to pay the bills. Yeah. I don't hate The Verge because I see that you've got Ford ads that are the top 60% of your homepage. I understand you guys got bills to pay. Right. And I think my audience and YouTube's audience at large, like they don't mind that you have to do brand deals 
And they don't mind that I'm doing a SeatGeek deal because there's no conflict there. What's challenging is one of my closest friends, huge YouTuber, and all of his, his videos are about beautiful cinematography and cameras, and he's fully sponsored by Canon. Mm-hmm. So how does the audience know if Canon really is the best or he's being paid to say? That's where the conflict comes from. Yeah. So looking ahead, it's, it's, it's being much, much more clear and transparent in what brands I'm working with and which brands don't present conflicts. You know, I'm, I, I am not a company that sells discounted tickets to <laughs> events. So when I talk about SeatGeek and thank them for sponsoring my channel, there's no conflict. There's yeah. there's there's nothing like that. So I, I do think there are ways to navigate this minefield, but it's it is tricky. I think that's where the Patreon type models come in, the Kickstarter drip type models come in. Where now you're just taking money from an audience. Right. And and you don't have this like third party well, so that the, may or may not influence you. Uh, this is interesting because I, I am Twitch I've just started playing with and mm-hmm. I absolutely like love Twitch. What an incredible platform. And Twitch's monetization uh, tools on there, like the, the way that you're able to make money off of Twitch is is wildly different from the way you make money on YouTube, even though you're essentially disseminating the same kind of content. I'm monetizing the same kind of content. And it feels so much more organic, so much more fair, so much more honest. And the on, the opportunities there are myriad. They're not just sort of a single payer method, which is AdSense. Yeah. But the question then is like, why doesn't YouTube just copy Twitch? I don't think they ever could. Really? I don't. I think slowly over time they could introduce uh, monetization products that maybe look like it. But the trouble is, you go to YouTube and you expect to see it for free. You expect everything to be AVOD because that's how it's always been. So the minute on YouTube you're asking for money. Um, you're a bad guy. This isn't how YouTube works. And I think it's that sort of collective understanding that is really challenging. You can't innovate. You can't innovate once the audience has a built-in understanding of what it looks like, especially when it comes to money. It's why, uh, you know, a lot of YouTubers on, uh, a lot of YouTube creators that use Patreon get a lot of shit for using Patreon. It's understood. If you use Patreon as a YouTuber, you will be like, you will be given a hard time by the audience. You'll be picked on for saying things like, why are you asking your audience to pay you money for your channel? This isn't how this works. It's a big topic of conversation on YouTube. I don't agree with it, Mm -hmm. but it is a big topic of conversation. And then you go over on Twitch with things like a tip jar and subscribers and Prime subscriptions. It is is the same exact, exact uh, method of, of, of giving someone money. Yeah. And on Twitch, it's it's the norm. So let's end. You're starting a new series. Can you talk about it? What's your next thing? Um, yeah, so kicking it off like kind of the first week of April, um, mm-hmm. it is something I'm much, much, much more excited about than I have been probably since I started Beam. Yeah. Like, I, like the butterflies in my stomach I haven't felt since I was raising capital for my tech company. But the short of it is, um, you know, I'm, I'm going all in on content creation because after years of you know building tech and everything else, I realized that's the thing that I just find most satisfying is is actually making things. It's what I love doing, um, and the approach this time around and the way that I'm scaling it, and turning it into a, a business, is that I now know the sort of the value and the opportunities that come along with having a successful series online. Um, having that level of influence, having, you know, what transpired six months into my vlog where I was doing, you know, a million and a half views a day um, and the opportunities that were coming at me that I was just leaving everything on the table because my focus is on the creative. So with some understanding of what that looks like, I'm now building infrastructure around myself and a business, businesses Mm -hmm. around myself to absorb, to mitigate, um, and to, uh, 
you know, to, to make sure we are exploring every opportunity that presents itself because of, uh, you know, because of this new show that I'm, I'm hoping so it's a show. will find an audience. I mean, it's a YouTube series. So it's a YouTube series on your channel. On my but channel. You're, but you're building multiple businesses around it? Preemptively. Okay. And that's something that I think is certainly new for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, um, this is going to sound crazy to say, and your audience is going to give me hell for saying this. I spent a half an hour on the phone last night with Jake Paul <laughs> getting advice. <laughs> um, uh, you know, whether you like his content or not, you know, Jake's somebody I've known for years and, and is, is doing interesting things from a business perspective. Yeah. Um, but this is such a new thing. And that's why I called Jake. This is such a new thing to really figure out and understand what the value of having a successful YouTube series uh, is and how do you take advantage of all that value. Right. And, and he's think, got multiple lines of business, right? He runs team and, and 10. Sure, and nothing I'm store. doing is 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 modeled after or looks like what he's doing, but the point is he does have those things. There's no objectively stating he does have those things and and I want to be in a position where I'm able to really really uh make sure that I'm not leaving opportunity on the floor because I'm focused on making my videos. Instead, let's build an infrastructure. Let's have the right people in place. Let's have the right physical space in place. Let's have everything around me that I need to have around me so when my creative does find its audience and that audience is excited by it and the opportunities that that beset that, I'm in a position to really um, not miss out on them. So that's the most sort of... uh, uh, ambiguous way <laughs> I can talk about what I'm doing. I don't want to take the I don't want to take the wind out of the sails because I'm yeah. I'm really excited about. Well, the when launch you launch, you'll it, come back. It won't be another year. Yeah, no. Let's start the, the DMs now, and <laughs> I can be back in less than a year. <laughs> well, dude, I've taken up an hour of your time. Thank you so much. I'm excited for your next thing. I, I you know, I made a really big gesture of bringing gifts by the studio That's here, true. and I thought you'd make a fuss out of it to make me seem like a good guy in the podcast. You haven't even mentioned it. Well, it's a br- another brand deal. Oh, here, here's what I'm going to say. Casey brought us some hot sauce. Hey, hot that's all I was, that's all I was looking sauce. for. He brought us like, <laughs> what, 12 bottles? 12 bottles of hot sauce. It's in a beautiful bag. <laughs> right. They're great. Are they for sale? You can plug the hot sauce. I, oh, I don't need to plug it. I told you I'm not getting paid for the hot sauce. <laughs> it's my friend's company. He gave me free juice and he put my face on a bottle of hot sauce. It's, it looks delicious. It's spicy. It's, I'm into it. I love a good hot sauce. Everybody loves a good I'll hot sauce. I'll make you this. I'll use it tonight. And I'll, I'll, I'll tweet no, it, but that's it. not a plug. Like, it's not no, a plug. You can't buy it. I think you can, maybe you can buy it in the stores. I'm not selling it. I don't make, <laughs> if you buy hot sauce, I don't make any money. I just, I just, you know. It was a very nice gesture. Yeah, they, that's all I'm looking for. also showed up and uh, rode one of our video director's unicycles around the office before I appreciate we that the Verge offices have a unicycle. We, it's real wacky. I, I describe our, our, the Verge culture as a really high-performing Montessori. Like it's like a surprisingly productive. My three year olds in Montessori, and I concur. That is exactly what the yeah, vibe in here is. Just a like. bunch of smart people doing whatever they want, and sometimes it's good. <laughs> That's like all I got. <laughs> and like I'm happy with that. That's that. We talked a lot about scaling up a business. It's surprising to me that we're as big as we are inside of a company that has gotten way bigger, uh, and it's still. You have to it's have a fun. you have to have a long enough rope, a long enough leash to really find your voice in media to succeed today. And I think that's why the bigger companies that are slower moving are struggling against smaller, more nimble companies is because that's a very, very hard principled thing to do when you've been doing things the same way for 20 or 30 years. Yeah. I mean, and we see that, right? We're now we're a bigger media company, but there are bigger media companies that want to come work with us and 
a lot of those conversations, we just sort of let them taper off because it, it I, the verge is a big thing that feels small and I want it to feel small for as, as long as it can. But thank you, not to talk about us at the end, but thank you so much for showing up. Thank you for the hot sauce. Great to be here. Thank you for the unicycle <laughs> adventure. Thanks for letting me ride it. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate it. This episode of the Vergecast brought to you by Simply Safe. Simply Safe is ready for anything gets thrown at it. It's a home security product. If a storm takes out your power, Simply Safe is ready. Intruder cuts your phone line, Simply Safe is ready. Say the intruder destroys your keypad or siren, Simply Safe will get you the help you need. Maybe it's overkill, maybe you don't need to be ready for every worst case scenario, but that's what makes Simply Safe's home security system so great. It is always Sim- ready. S- Simply Safe's Simply Safe could cost an arm and a leg, but it doesn't. Instead, they only charge you what's fair. 24-7, professional security monitoring is only $14.99 a month. There are no contracts and no hidden feeds. You just go to their website and check it out. It's simplisafe, simplysafe.com slash verge. That's simplysafe.com slash verge. Protect your home and family today. How do you spell simply? S-I-M-P-L-I-S-A-F-E dot com slash verge. And I want to clarify, it has no hidden feeds. Yeah, no, <laughs> all the RSS out in the there, open. There's no kind of social dimension to Simply Safe. <laughs> like, Paul. Yeah. Every week, buddy. Oh, dang. You do a thing. So is there already a time for that? Yeah. It's called, every week I do a segment called Swag for Me, Swag for You, Too. I don't understand the punctuation <laughs> of that. It sounded like a question mark and then an ellipses. Why isn't there a question mark comma? I need that oh, all yeah. the time. That's the whole thing. Yeah. You can just. You know yeah. what I mean? You know, there's a semicolon, which is like a colon, but a comma. Just the same, exactly <laughs> the same idea, but for a question mark. Is, with this, a, is this your product of the week? No. <laughs> Go ahead. There's no rules against me adding. Useful p- punctuation to the English language. Yo, right? if this is the beginning of a long con movie where you join the Unicorn <laughs> Consortium. <laughs> Question mark with a comma. All right. I'll get back to everybody about that. Paul's in the Unicode okay. meetings being like, gentlemen, I've come to present you with my idea. Everyone's like, who is this young scamp? He started in the mailroom. <laughs> Go ahead. BlackBerry's Fan League will give you swag for hyping its poorly selling phones. So uh, BlackBerry has a a fan. Basically, League. they're trying to start a street team. <laughs> they're, 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 a, a, crowd, a crowdsourced grassroots street team. And I just thought this was a really good time to remind everyone of my greatest failure as a gadget journalist Mm -hmm. when I hyped the BlackBerry Storm for Engadget. In 2008, I wrote our first hands-on of the BlackBerry Storm. I thought a clicking key, the whole screen, if you don't remember the BlackBerry Storm, it was a touchscreen phone, but the whole screen clicked. Yeah. And I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. It's called SurePress. SurePress. And I was into it, <laughs> and nobody else was. <laughs> so I feel like I should get, at least get a shirt or a mug yeah. from the BlackBerry Fan League. Like, t- literally a decade later. For, for their hype. Well, if you are on the BlackBerry Street team, mm. please let us know. I, I would just love to meet you. Mm. I like the idea of starting a street team when your user base is exclusively government employees who receive your devices on contract. <laughs> <laughs> I see the street Acela team street ever. team. Hey, we work. We work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we work in the financial district. 
a line for a sandwich. Sometimes I see a a financial person typing on a BlackBerry. Are they handing out hats? No, <laughs> but soon they will be. <laughs> Got it. All right. Thank you, Paul. Yeah. All right, Mr. Newton. Yes. Every week. <laughs> Every week, Facebook does something insane. Um, and that is true. Uh, Casey, you've been writing a lot about Facebook for us lately. Um, oh. You have an entire newsletter about social media platforms and democracy called The Interface that I recommend everybody subscribe to. But you wrote a piece this week, uh, and you had a line that just really resonated with me, which is, Facebook is racking up crises faster than the company can like mine them and can yeah. talk with them. And then, obviously, this week, Zuckerberg was on CNN. He's apologizing for Cambridge Analytica. You made a video about the Cambridge Analytica situation where people can watch. But just walk us through it. What the hell is going on? Yeah, it's such a weird scandal, as I said in my video, because the basic details were known two years ago, which is that this political strategy data mining firm named Cambridge Analytica got a hold of up to 50 million user profiles on Facebook uh, because they were working with this uh, researcher named Alexander Kogan, who created a personality quiz app and gotten all these people to download it. And at the time, if you took, uh, if you used an app like that and you gave Facebook uh, permission to access your information, it could also access your friends' information. So people wind up wound up inadvertently giving away all of this data, and then Cambridge Analytica turned around and during the 2016 election used it to do what they call psychographic profiling. And the idea it's somewhat controversial and not perfectly understood, but the gist is that by understanding what you like on Facebook and what you do on Facebook, an advertiser might be able to understand your personality so as to better target advertising at you. And where this nets out is maybe, just maybe, this gave Cambridge Analytica an unfair advantage over the Hillary Clinton campaign who didn't have to steal data from some shady researcher at the University of Cambridge. But the thing is, like, all of that was known two years ago, with the exception of the scope of it. And what happened uh, last Friday was that the New York Times and The Guardian published this blockbuster investigation that said, hey, the scope of this was actually way bigger than we thought. Facebook had actually never even acknowledged that this happened um, officially two years ago. But when The Times and The Guardian showed up this time, they said, okay, yes, that's true. And we're going to investigate. And at that point, it was sort of all hands on deck. And, and we've sort of been dealing with the fallout ever since. But the point that I've tried to make yesterday is that the reason that I think this blew up is that trust in Facebook has never been lower, precisely because it does seem like every week or every month now there is some new crisis or some new scandal that it feels like it can't wrap its arms around. Yeah. And to be clear, the timeline of this latest story, they also just blew it. Right. So the Guardian and the Times, those reporters said that Facebook's immediate reaction to the story was to threaten to sue those papers, um, which is not great. And that's at least the claim. Then they tried to end run the story by putting out blog posts, uh, copying to suspending Cambridge Analytica. And then there was, what, four days of five days of where is Mark Zuckerberg? He didn't say anything. And then yesterday was like this, like, you know, announcement media blitz. And we can get into the substance of what he says Facebook is going to do. But that is not like well-managed PR strategy, at least as far as I can tell. 
It's not, and it's surprising for them because they think their PR team is pretty good. They're pretty sensitive. They're responsive, and they're good at at managing this kind of stuff. Um, I've certainly had run-ins with them over the years, but by and large, I don't think that's a dumb team of people. Uh, but something happened on this story where it seemed like absolutely every single thing they did backfired. Correct me if I'm wrong. Facebook asked the Cambridge Analytica to delete this data. When, correct. Right. And this goes to the heart of why some people were so mad about what happened. Um, it's that uh, when Facebook learned that there was a problem, they went to uh, the people who had es- essentially stolen it. Maybe that's too strong a word, but who had sort of illicitly gotten a hold of this data. And they said, hey, you're not allowed to have that. You need to delete that. And please fill out this form saying you deleted it. And so they did that, but then they didn't follow up afterwards. And the allegations... Was this form uh, legally binding? Because that's the way that they keep characterizing it. Zuckerberg presented as uh, them legally certifying it, but it is not clear to me that what they signed was some sort of, uh, like, affidavit or, like, was truly legally binding. Right, okay. And that was in 2015? Um, That happened later. My understanding is that they wound up not going back to them, asking them to delete it until 2016. Okay. Because, yeah, it seems to me like Facebook could have just said, wow, thank you, newspaper people, for for finding out that we've been lied to. We feel like we've been fooled. And obviously this is a betrayal of trust to our customers, but we got snookered too, and we're going to do way better on our forums. <laughs> 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 right. Um, and, and, you know, they actually have said uh, a couple of times now that they're grateful for the work that the journalists have done on this story. The reason that they maybe threatened to sue or at least kind of sent a pretty strongly worded note to uh, The Guardian um, was that The Guardian insisted on calling this a data breach. And some companies believe that the words data breach trigger um, this mandatory response from companies. And so they hate it when you call it a data breach when their systems weren't actually penetrated, right? Facebook argues all these people gave away their data willingly. Now it was misused after the fact, but in the moment they gave it away willingly. So this isn't a breach. That's the Facebook argument. And the guardians basically said, eh, screw that. Like 50 million people lost control of their data. That's a breach. So that's, that's the heart of the argument. And that's why Facebook sent a legal nasty gram about it. And then in the middle of this, Along those same lines, their chief security officer, his name is Alex Stamos. That's right. Yeah. Put out a, a whole tweet storm about why it wasn't a data breach. And then he deleted, he, his tweet he deleted storm. that tweet storm. And then the Times reported that he was leaving the company because he was fighting about how secure Facebook should be, which is just like another thing. Like it's another branching fighting, piece. Fighting on – he's trying to keep Facebook unsecure? No, he's trying to, he's trying to secure it more. <laughs> he has this like sterling reputation. So he was at Yahoo. He was fighting with Marissa Meyer about having to reset everyone's passwords when it got hacked. And Yahoo's executives didn't want to do that uh, because it would be an inconvenience. Mm. Right. So he he has this reputation as like an idealistic fighter for security. And he wanted, at least according to the Times report, wanted to be more upfront with what was happening with Russians on the platform. And he was getting pushback. 
and so Casey now he's just out, right? He's going to be there for a couple. Like his team went from like a hundred people to like two, and then he's leaving. that. Yeah, so that's what the Times reported. Uh, reportedly, he's going to be staying on through August, and he says that he's working on the kinds of things that you and I would probably hope that he would be working on, which is sort of threats that haven't manifested yet. How else could Facebook be misused in the midterm election? So that's what he says he's working on. It's pretty hard to determine from the outside uh, what his day to day is like. Um, but certainly it was a black eye for the company because, as you said, Neil, he did have such a good reputation and because Facebook is under such enormous pressure to make sure that it is not um, uh, influenced by bad actors or, or foreign states during this election, right? Like Alex Namos is somebody who you would want to have on your team if you are a user of Facebook uh, hoping that the platform is not misused. And so I think I want to talk about the Zuckerberg stuff, but real quick, that seems to me the heart of it. I I have always worried that we can't get any traction on like Facebook news or Facebook privacy stories or privacy stories in general. And then, you know, just in the midst of this, like everyone sort of did the service journalism of how to delete your Facebook account. And we did the we did a piece somewhere vain, how to use Facebook without while giving it a minimum amount of your data. These posts yeah. exploded on our site. How to do? How to use Facebook while giving it a minimum amount of your data did way better than how to delete Facebook. It suddenly seemed like there's this huge consciousness of the fact that Facebook takes your data and they can do things with it, like give it to third-party developers with a terms of service agreement that maybe you don't have to pay attention to because mm. what the hell is going to happen? Casey, are you right. seeing I- that shift as, as, as strongly as I am? I think so. I think that trust in Facebook has never been lower because it has this overlapping set of scandals and crises that it's dealing with, and it's having trouble um, fully containing any of them. And so the net effect of that is if you're just kind of a person on the internet, every few days you see another story about how Facebook is being misused or another problem that Facebook has caused or something that Facebook can't get a handle on. And so your trust in it declines over time. And so when a big story comes along and kind of captivates the world, I do think all of a sudden there's this instinct to understand, you know what, if I wanted to delete my my Facebook profile, how could I do that? Or let's say I don't want to delete it, but like, can I just like get rid of everything I've ever liked or like, what, what can I do to protect myself better? Uh, to me, that seems like a very natural response. So looking at Zuckerberg, yes, he finally like emerged from his shell mm. and he talked to, he talked to Kara at Recode. Um, he, he talked to the Times. He, t- uh, and Kurt at Recode. Kara, it was Kara and Kurt at Recode. He talked to the Times, talked to Wired and he talked to CNN. That was it, right? That's right. He did four interviews. Um, well, he did one interview. I'm oh, sorry. He gave. He did four interviews wherein he gave almost almost identical answers. The places where those like different interviews diverged from each other was actually the most fascinating parts of of it. So you had to like. Casey did a really good job in his summation of this. He like he called out all the like parts of the things that were different from each other, because uh, like where he diverged, where he like got off message and started like talking about what he really feels, uh, was the most interesting part to me. Here is your. Average daily disclosure, uh, my wife works for Oculus, which is part of Facebook. But, like, that's where, like, he gets into, like, the chicken dust, right? Like, that was the most the most <laughs> I, fun parts of those. I want to get there. But, Casey, as you read those four interviews and his responses to questions and his statement about what Facebook's going to walk us through what Facebook is going to do and then tell us how you kind of read all that. Yeah, so there was kind of a spectrum of actions that you could anticipate Facebook taking in response to this, like, from conservative to 
crazy aggressive. And I would say that they fell on kind of the more conservative end of that spectrum. So two big things that they're doing. One, if you have any app connected to your Facebook profile and you don't use that app for three months, Facebook will cut off that app's access to your data. And this is really important because it's very common if you download a new app to log in once with Facebook and then you decide you hate the app and you delete it. And then six years later, that developer is still theoretically gathering information about you and and doing who knows what with it. So that's the first big thing. And I think probably the best step that they're taking. And then the second thing that they're doing is a big cleanup action. So again, and before 2014, developers could get access to information about your friends when you logged into their apps using Facebook's login. And so there are thousands of apps that apparently had access to this huge amount of information. Facebook's going back to them and saying, hey, we're going to audit you now. You have to submit to an audit. You need to show us what you're doing with that data if you misused it. And if you say no, we're going to kick you off the platform. So that's going to be the kind of their big effort to come back and say, you know what? And by the way, this is going to be another round of tough headlines for them, I think, but they're going to come forward with a bunch of other apps that were doing things that were as shady or shadier. And, uh, and then we're going to have another moment of reckoning around that. Yeah. I, so that when you say that's conservative, I read that entire statement and I just thought to myself, why aren't you doing that already? Like, right. What is the, there's something at Facebook that just prevents them from thinking about this stuff before it's a scandal. And to me, that's like the biggest problem. Yeah. I mean, it's the, it is, a persistent and I think valid critique of Silicon Valley, which is that it is run by optimists, which on one hand is the only reason that Silicon Valley functions to begin with. But on the other hand, it means it's full of people who do not spend enough time thinking about the, ne- the negative consequences. You know, so when I, I write this daily newsletter about social media and democracy, and I think of it as a journal of unintended consequences because people just never see around those corners. And this was a huge and important corner they didn't see around. Well, to me, it's, um, I don't know, the Verge, as a website, has weird legacy corners of it that, like, we thought were really important, were a big deal, and then eh, maybe it's not as big a deal. And they're, they're still sort of hanging out somewhere in the corners of the website. And they pop up every now and then, like, oh, oh, yeah, that still exists. It's kind of broken. Actually, it's super broken. Well, whatever. We moved on. We thought it was important. Turned out not to be. We, we did something else. That broken thing can hang out there. It's fine. You know, you know what is a, th- a broken thing that's hanging out there, by the way? What's that? Uh, is the, our old Verge app from like 2011 that is dead? No. Mike Murphy, <laughs> the tech reporter, Quartz pointed out that it had access to a shitload of Facebook data. No way. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's gone. No. I was like, oh, we should. We didn't know. <laughs> anyway, Dieter, <laughs> oh what's God. the difference? The difference, I thought the difference was going to be <laughs> that our shit it doesn't have the personal information of millions of users and Facebook shit does. And so maybe they should like not have that same like forget about it attitude towards that. They actually need to be like hyper vigilant about all of this stuff so that when like they change course or they, you know, sunset a product, somebody goes back and is like, okay, what's, what are the consequences of this? What personal data could still be out there? I mean, I agree. They... It, I think it's hard to have that mentality of combing through your past and fixing all your mistakes. Uh, but the isn't there an aspect of like, well, everybody's doing it? Because I, when, whenever I hear these privacy things, like I just assume that everything that I've ever done on the Internet is known by anybody who wants to know it. 
Yeah. Like, I, so yeah, go it, ahead. it's a good question. And, and I think sort of what you're getting at is like, why does everybody care this time? And something obvious that we haven't really underlined is the reason that a lot of people care about this is the suggestion that because our Facebook data got away from us, it helped Donald Trump get elected. And there's a lot of people who wish that he hadn't been elected, right? So Often in privacy scandals, the reason they don't really resonate is because the consequences seem very abstract. This was a case where they seem very concrete. Right. And our science team, Angela Chen, wrote a great piece pulling apart the fact that Cambridge Analytica is kind of bullshit. Like what they claim yeah. to be able to do with this data doesn't really hold up to like particular Which scrutiny. The concept that they have so much data about people that they can manipulate their actions somehow – so the, I think that concept has a basis in reality, mm. right? Like if I know a lot about you, I can probably craft a more persuasive message. But the reality is that Cambridge Analytica in particular, who knows, mm. right? And they're I think there's a quote that's like they're a great marketing company. I, I guess they're, uh, they're not good at what they – But But let's uh, – I don't want to come across of like, well, who cares if there's a data breach? I more think the way I think of it is that every okay, let's say I've liked seven movies anywhere on the internet. I kind of all automatically assume that any other entity in the world that wants to figure out what I like knows it. Ah, you know? So Facebook I, I don't, is not the internet. I never Fa like it is for a lot of people, but in theory, the other reason I think that people freak out about this is Facebook gives you this thing, which may be an illusion that you can limit what is seen to just your friends. And it's, uh, you're not just out there in the world naked before the web. You are in your safe little Facebook house with just your Facebook friends. I definitely perceived and, that yeah. as an illusion. So that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's well, that's true. I mean, there's ad tracking networks. There's, um, there's like, you know, the European union has a a huge new privacy law called the General Data uh, Protection Act, which is GDPR. Like, it's a lot. There's a lot of action in this world. Is that world. the right to be forgotten? They No, they're different, but okay. they interact um, because for a variety of reasons. But, like, if you collect data about – if you're a service provider in the European Union right. and you collect data about me, right. theoretically, I have the right to force you to forget it. Right. But you have a speech right. Like, there's a lot. It's right. a lot. You know, Casey, to me – when I was watching Zuckerberg on CNN last night, the thing that like sprung me into action to like immediately write a post about it was he said maybe we should be regulated, and he he brought up in particular and he brought this up I believe with the with Wired as well the idea that when you see an ad on Facebook you should know where it came from and why it's there mm. right and there's like some regulation in the United States to to push that forward called the Honest Ads Act, and then and then he took this weird swerving turn into like. How you can't really regulate well because you don't know what AI is going to do. And then maybe the AI will be so smart it will regulate itself. And then Nick Thompson at Wired asked him about hate speech and like regulating that on the platform. And he said, well, my understanding of food regulation is that there's a certain amount of dust that gets into the chicken. And we want to keep that amount low. But we understand that to feed so many people, you're just going to have to deal with it. And that's how I think about hate speech. And that to me is like – off the rails insanity because I don't think <laughs> a that's not even how we think about chicken processing. <laughs> like, how do you think about chicken processing? Uh, uh, as, as little as possible is <laughs> how I think like, about it. That's, <laughs> like I don't think the FDA is like oh, I got to update those dust numbers. Like mm. right there's like a, yeah, a but they 
they they super are doing that. Like yeah, the, there's a uh, there's yeah. a taller the tolerable amount of poison in everything that we eat. Sure, yeah. and like rat parts and permilion. Okay, but yeah. so if you like accept that, then you accept that a government agency is going to set a number of acceptability mm. that is like healthy for the population, like X number of hates per month. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, and then you ex- then right the second part of that is. They will regularly Ooh. audit your chicken processing plant to make sure that what, you're doing. What do you it guys right. think about yeah, the difference here? Is go ahead. like we 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 accept that the government can regulate chickens, but chickens aren't speech, right? I don't think that there is an acceptable amount of hate speech, and I, I realize like in the free speech debate that actually places me into a camp that makes a specific kind of argument. But right. I think the answer for these platforms is no amount of hate speech on a platform is acceptable. And then you have to fine. And then we're gonna have this like philosophical argument of what constitutes. But like, I I think that there is definitely some stuff that should just not appear, right? And how do you manage it and moderate it? And I just look at Zuckerberg's answers, and what I see is somebody who is yet to contend with the enormous amount of responsibility that that they have. Mm-hmm. Well, there's right. this really amazing uh, quote, uh, which will be in my newsletter that is going out tonight. Um, uh, but he <laughs> said it to Kara Swisher, and. Uh, what he said, because it was also in response to a question about hate speech and how he thought about all of that. And what he said was things like, where's the line on hate speech? I mean, who chose me to be the person that did that? I guess I have to because we're here now, but I'd rather <laughs> not. So so the answer to who chose me is Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like this is a person who has ruthlessly pursued growth around the world. He has bought up uh, or attempted to kill off all of his competitors. And he's worked very hard to maintain almost total individual control of the company, right? Like his his board is very weak. So it's like Zuckerberg himself who has put himself in that position. And yet we sort of found out yesterday that he has not come to terms with how much responsibility that he has. Yeah, he also, there was another part where he was talking about Maybe about like AI and like, you know, pre-vetting posts before they go up and can AI identify identify hate speech. And he's like, it's a really interesting intellectual exercise. It's like, it's one of the most fascinating intellectual questions ever. It's like, well, also, it's not just academic. Like also, also, this is happening right now. And so that was the thing when I watched, in particular, when I watched the CNN interview, I started to understand why he'd been hidden for four or five days. Because he doesn't seem ready for this moment. Right. He, he's it. What you want from Zuckerberg in this moment is like forceful decision making. Right. In the sense of, well, this is my thing. and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix it. And he said a lot of words that indicate that. But I, at least for me, I did not see a presence that was grappling with the amount of personal responsibility that he had or so, like living. So up here's why. Here's yeah. why. Like Facebook thinks it's the victim here. Um, and uh, and and in some ways, I think they can actually make a very credible case, right? Like they, they set up this platform, this platform had rules, and this person totally lies to them, says he's just going to do some academic research, creates this very innocuous seeming app, and then it turns out he's giving it away to uh, Donald Trump's data operations team, right? And so from Facebook's perspective, they have been scammed, and, and this person is a fraudster, and, and they want to... Um, 
uh, punish him, right? And so when you're in that mindset of like, hey, who the heck is this this guy? Uh, we need to get our revenge. And then the rest of the world is telling you, hey, this is your fault. How are you going to fix that? I think there was just a kind of breakdown that it took them five days to work their way through and figure out how are we going to swallow hard and say, well, you know what? Maybe we should never have made that data available in the first place. And maybe we should have investigated these apps much more than we did. Um, but like that was an emotional journey. And I think there was still a lot of biting his tongue going on last night when he gave those interviews. Yeah, if, if I was Mark Zuckerberg... When when this popped up, I'd be like, oh, great. People are going to blame us for Donald Trump getting elected again. Which is what is happening, without question. But that's, I mean, that's obviously, I mean, that's bullshit. Like, people voted for, for Donald Trump. Yeah. You know, like, I just... I don't agreed. know why. It's just <laughs> very confusing. <laughs> it did happen. This, I mean, there's like, I feel like there's a big effort to assign a blame, to shift the blame from the free will of people to a, a a large platform that was abused. Yeah, because so um, there's a I'm not going to find the tweets right now, but David Roberts, who works for Vox.com, had this great tweet storm that's like the frame that you should look at the world right now in is everyone in the world, everyone thought Hillary Clinton was going to win this election. Mm. And they, they, they all went too far too fast because they were all ready to attack her. Right, she was going to be the the vehicle for everyone's outrage for the, at least the next four years, right? So the Republicans could attack her, the left wing, and the Democratic who went, party. Who went too far too fast? Everybody, and they they before she got elected, they started attacking her, and then she didn't win, hmm. and then this unthinkable thing happened, and I think it wasn't she, unthinkable to everybody. I predicted. That, sure. So my family, like we were all talking. Obviously, I, some I, people. I guessed it. There seemed like there was a real but the structure enthusiasm of our, for one of the candidates. There was. And you know, I, like people vote for I don't know. It's I, just I get it. I, but it's a the lot entire of world was predicated mm-hmm. on her winning. It's just true. Like when we cover net neutrality, my number one talking point is when these companies thought Hillary Clinton was gonna win, their their investment plans were still going up. Right? Like they all made assumptions. Everyone made this assumption and this thing happened that most people did not assume would happen and had not made plans for. Mm-hmm. And now we're looking to explain this thing that seemed unthinkable. And there well, are- and the, the election was close. Don't forget, like, you know, 304, whatever the number was, the number of voters in the three states that, like, turned the electoral college. And when, when, in a, when an election is that close, you can, you can make the case that any number of tiny things are the thing that pushed it over. And, of course, it was an accumulation of all of those tiny things. But every time something new pops up, it's like, oh, God, maybe that did it. Uh, you can you could like it sounds reasonable to say, oh, well, that's the thing, because it was such a small number of people across three states that it's conceivable that any even even the, the bumbling, inept, uh, good at marketing, bad at actually executing Cambridge Analytica you want to believe could have been the thing that made it happen. Right. The, cl- the closer it is, the, the more you're willing to believe anything. Yeah. I should have gone to Wisconsin. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Just go home, talk to everybody. So I, I, I get it. Like, people voted. But I think this thing that did, on that tight of a margin, did anything win. And then I think the other thing, and Casey has been making this point, is when we did our survey last October of how people feel about Facebook and all the big tech companies, like, we didn't run that survey. We hired an outside consultant to do it, nationally representative sample. People just don't trust Facebook. Mm-hmm. They just don't. And I think 
these compounding stories about how Facebook is a bad actor, like now you can point to a big bad, but that that is built on a, a foundation of little mistakes and other fuck ups. And for years, people, you know, writing and posts on Facebook, I do not authorize you to use my data. Liking this <laughs> so post just a... makes this a contract, right? Like people, like that's been there the whole time. Mm. Here's and a now, thing. Yeah. One of the problems with fake news and the viral spread of fake news, especially on platforms like Facebook, is people formed little bubbles and they were willing to believe things uh, that they wanted to because it uh, supported their pre-existing beliefs. They had a confirmation bias. And currently, right now, everyone is freaking out on Facebook because they don't like Facebook because this bad story about Facebook aligns with their confirmation bias. Mm. Hoist it on your own petard, Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, Casey, what happens next? Uh, so there are going to be a couple of things. Um, there's an employee Q and a tomorrow is my understanding, um, that Zuckerberg will be speaking at. So we sort of may hear more from that. Um, there is going to be a series of investigations of these apps that had access to more data, which, uh, Facebook will presumably tell us more about later. Facebook is also going to be notifying the 50 million people who had their information improperly shared. Um, and that's, kind of the the next few steps there. Um, But remember, this is not Facebook's only problem. They also have the newsfeed integrity problem where you don't know if you can trust what you see there. And then you have this broader cultural reckoning over how are we spending our time on social media? Is it good for us personally? Is it good for democracy? So lots of things are kind of swirling around um, that are going to far outlast the data privacy scandal, I think. And if somebody wanted to receive an email digest of this news every day, where might they find such a thing? Neela, I'm so glad you asked. If you go to <laughs> my Twitter profile at Casey Newton, there is a link there to a daily newsletter about social networks and democracy. Are you saying link in bio? <laughs> I'm saying link in bio. Perfect. All right. I think that's all we have for this week. Casey, thank you for explaining this to us. It is so wild and complicated. It's an amazing story. I have I have no love in my heart for Facebook. I want to be honest with everybody. Like I, every other company that we cover, like they make some product that I, I guess Facebook makes Instagram. So, hmm. yeah, everybody loves Instagram and forgets that Facebook makes it, which is like a huge competitive strength that Facebook has. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they just shut it down and ran Instagram. Fine. Yeah. Anyway, there's other stuff to listen to. Why'd you push that button? Season two is happening. This week's episode is about taking selfies in public, which, by the way, I firmly believe taking selfies in public. Always acceptable, any situation, anytime. It is just a photo. If you think it's acceptable to take a photo in that time, it is acceptable to take a photo of yourself. Agreed. I tweeted that. People like started freaking out at me. But anyway, listen to it. Caitlin Ashley do a much better job of telling that story than I do. Um, so that's happening. Uh, Megan Freckman wrote a great feature about Telltale Games this week that you should read if you are the sort of person who wants to build a product or a company. Mm. Just how they, the culture just got out of control, fell apart. Go read that. Uh, Lauren Good, still doing Verses on the YouTubes, so watch that. She's also got a podcast called Too Embarrassed to Ask. Kara Swisher has a podcast called Recode Decode. Peter Kafka has a podcast called Recode Media. Kara Swisher, by the way, recently had The Mooch on uh, on her podcast. Yeah, she's been on a, a real... Mucci. She's been on a real run on that show lately. Oh. So listen, hey, that's... Casey, Casey, I thought you were going to have a podcast. Oh, you got there. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, very much forthcoming, although as you might imagine, this week's Facebook apocalypse <laughs> oh. has uh, has been top of mind. But uh, yes, that we are moving, and uh, I think I'm going to have a lot to say about that very soon. I'm so super into so it. So excited. 
Converge with Casey Newton, a podcast that you cannot currently subscribe to on Apple Podcasts, but all those other ones are there for you. And C- Casey said he'll give you five bucks if you can uh, guess the XML feed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hundred percent true. <laughs> it hasn't been created yet, so to guess it would absolutely be worth five dollars. <laughs> uh, you can find us all on Twitter. Paul is Future Paul. Casey's Casey Newton. Uh, Dieter's Backlon. I am Reckless. All these things are available to subscribe to. Thank you to Casey Neistat for being on the show this week. Again, the full hour-long rambling chat somewhere else in this feed if you want. And that is it. Rock and roll. Oh. Promo code. <laughs>